The question of denominations is really easy when there's only one correct one. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Simply Faithful, a place for Christian conversations without the hype. We're here to discuss faith, life, and ministry with each other and with other interesting people. Our desire is to save you a place at the table with us. Here at Simply Faithful, we're hoping to begin conversations about Christianity that you can continue throughout your life. This week, denominations, are they a good thing? What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simply Faithful. This is a podcast where we're trying to carve out space to have some discussions about Christianity without the hype. So if you're joining us for the first time, we're really glad that you have joined us on the show. My name is Gray. I'm a pastor in Central Phoenix, Arizona. And my name is Eric. I am a pastor of Kishwaukee Church near Rockford, Illinois. Today we're talking about denominations, and we should expect some amount of disagreement, some amount of careful thinking today, because this is a very hard topic. So it's going to be interesting to dive in with you, Eric. But I'm looking right now at an image that I've pulled up off the internet that I've seen multiple times that have come into my Facebook feed over and over again. And it's a little bit of a joke. The setting is a membership class at a church. And so someone's teaching a membership class, and they have up on the board this is a diagram of all the church and Christian movements throughout history. So starting with 1 AD, right at the turn of the millennia there when Jesus was born, all the way to the present day. And there's this diagram of different splints and split-offs and different churches that have started. It's this massively complex diagram. And lines are going in all different directions. And the teacher of the class is circling one of the smallest little prongs at the present day moment. And he's saying... This is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And then there's a classroom and the kids are sitting there and they're one of the kids says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. And of course, this elicits a laugh every time I see it, a little chuckle from myself. And a lot of people think this is funny. These split offs of these churches are something that we often make fun of. So today we call those denominations, but a lot of denominations are rooted in these historic movements. And there have been major splits in the church and minor splits in the church, and some of those splits have had their own splits. And so today, we're looking at a situation where we have many thousands of groups of Christians. And so the question that we're wrestling with is, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to have denominations? Is it a wrong thing? Or maybe some would say, it's, it's good because it's necessary now, but it's kind of a necessary evil. And a lot of the tension around this has come out in recent years when World Christian Encyclopedia in 2001 put out their results that they had counted 33,830 denominations around the world. And that number's most likely grown since then. But the, the big question is, how do we interpret that data? Do we trust that there's all these denominations in the world and what's kind of behind that? And so, Eric, the first thing I want to talk about with you is to try to get our hands around what the actual problem is. Because most people would look at a chart like that in the image, and we can post it on the show notes for everyone to see, or, or they look at the statistics and say 33,000 denominations. Isn't this a failure of Christians to be unified? And should Christians even be unified? So I was wondering first, if, if anything comes to mind, biblically speaking, that talks about the unity that we're supposed to have as a church, because I think we need to agree on what the actual problem is. Absolutely, there is a sense in which the church needs to be united. If you listened to our last episode, actually, 
We mentioned this idea of the Catholicity of the Church. Catholicity means unity. And we have long as Christians said that we believe in one holy Catholic, meaning united church. And so in that sense, absolutely, there is a problem that people feel. Think about Jesus in John chapter 17, praying for his disciples that they might be one as he and the Father are one. You think about places like Ephesians 4, where Paul calls us to unity because we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And so absolutely there is a sense in which we are called to be unified. Now, how that sense fits in with all of the specific questions about denominations is something we need to unpack in a minute, because I don't think it's as simple as some people instinctively make it. But without question, at least some of the fragmented nature of the modern church is a problem and is a contradiction of this theological call to unity. I want to ask you to expand on that because there is a real tension that people feel. You know, John 17, for instance, that you mentioned, people say is Jesus's most impassioned prayer, right? Or sometimes they say it's his most important prayer that we be one. That's the thing he cares about more than anything else, that we would be united. And so then they look at the evidence of all these denominations and any sense of prioritizing, uh, we have a slightly different belief structure than you, we have slightly different practices, and so we're going to have our own denomination, seems to them to be a failure of following what Jesus said. Do you think that it is a failure of what Jesus said to be one, or do you think, or how would you nuance that discussion? Let me back up first of all and just note that the reality of functional divisions existing for Christians is a very old one. I think people have this idea that until the Protestant Reformation, this wasn't a live issue. But in the first place, even in the early church, there were these theological debates that people were caught up in. And many of those debates were decided at the councils. And from the authority of those councils, different positions were decreed heretical. But if you were sorting through those things before those church councils had taken place, you were going to end up going to a church that thought that Arius or the the more apostolic position or whatever was correct. And even after that, if you grew up in, say, Egypt or in Asia, you would have belonged to a sect of Christianity, in those cases, the Monophysite and the Nestorian sects of Christianity, which w- were declared heretical and which I think were incorrect in how they understood certain things. But that would have been the only Christianity you would have been exposed to. And so it's always been the case that people have had to sort through this complexity of competing claims to what the Bible says and what we're supposed to believe is true. That's right. I think it's undeniable that the spirit in which many denominations are born from is a spirit of divisiveness. So I think we can agree that sometimes the impulse for creating something new comes from a deep dissatisfaction with the old. That's always the case. But that dissatisfaction sometimes doesn't rise to the level of needing to create a new denomination. And so I think we could say on some level, of course, this is true, that having denominations or the fact that we have so many of them is maybe a failure of unity in the church. Would you agree with that? Yes. Let me give you, are you ready for this? This is Eric's taxonomy of four reasons that churches can split and form new churches or denominations in descending order of how bad they are. Wow. Wait, are you going to, are you going to print a book? Because we're not supposed to have hype on this conversation. So. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Okay. First, first reason is they are splitting because of fundamental gospel issues. If a church, if part of a church is denying something like Jesus's resurrection or the necessity to believe in him for salvation, and they split. That is, in fact, a biblically commanded split because there's a consistent biblical call to separate oneself from false teachers because they're apostate. They're not teaching Christianity anymore. So that's the the kind of like top tier. The second tier is there are splits that happen because Christians disagree 
about non-gospel issues that really are probably still essential to the church functioning as as a church together. You put mode of baptism in this category? Yes. I mean, the classic example of this is church government. Like, should bishops rule the church? Should there be elders that rule the church? Should the whole congregation get to vote like a democracy? If half of the congregation is voting as a democracy and then there's a bishop for the other half of the congregation, it just doesn't work, right? You've got to have a sort of (laughs) consensus about that in order to move forward. The same with other convictions. For example, if in a church, some people are trying to practice tongue speaking and worship and other people have read John MacArthur and are trying to cast demons out of them because they think that it's a work of the devil, they're not going to be able to function in a meaningful way as a church. Just to be clear, you're saying these are within the bounds of orthodoxy, some of these opinions, but there's such a functional difference that it rises to the level of needing to divide. That's right. And that second tier is where a lot of what, in my mind, the necessary divisions between denominations have come from. Mm-hmm. If you think about the Protestant Reformation, while issues of the gospel and scripture and all of this were caught up in it, it also in many ways just boiled down to this one fundamental question, which is, does the Roman magisterium, meaning the Pope and, and Rome as it surrounds him, do they have the authority to authoritatively declare what the Bible says, how to interpret it, or do they not? And if you don't think they do, then you can't be Catholic. And if you think they do, then you have to be Catholic. And there's really not a way to work out that dispute. So those are the first two tiers. The third tier is when people take still real theological issues, but ones that you probably could live in unity over and choose to divide over them anyway. And so you think about the the classic independent Bible church, where suddenly half the church decides that there's a pre-tribulation rapture, and half the church decides there's a post-tribulation rapture, and they end up splitting over that debate. And admittedly, as a Christian who doesn't think that there's a tribulation or a rapture in the sense that those people do, I have some freedom to critique that, and I want to be careful there. But it seems to me that you could work through that disagreement and still live in unity. We both serve in denominations that actually allows diversity on end times views and people can have different positions and it works fine. Would you also put worship styles in that category? I would, as long as it's not violating something fundamental, like we're not going to take the Lord's Supper or something. So that tier, it seems to me, is where you start to get into tragic divisions. Although I still sort of understand those divisions because there's a sort of substance to them. And the last year, we just need to honestly recognize there's plenty of splits that have happened between churches that believe pretty much all the same stuff, and it's just over power struggles or influence or issues that have nothing to do with the church at all. Or something as amorphous as culture. That's often a word that's used. You know, we have a we have the same creeds, we have the same confessions, we have the same everything, except for we have a different culture. Maybe we're a little more of a homeschool kind of church. Maybe we're a little more of a contemporary worship kind of church, and that culture is enough to divide us. Just to come back to a comment that I wanted to make on that initial World Christian Encyclopedia stat of 33,800 different denominations, many of those splits and denominations that it notes exist because of issues in those bottom two things in the taxonomy, and so I would regard as problems, but there are two caveats that need to be given to that statistic. One of those caveats is that a lot of that diversity is simply because a number of Christian traditions do not have an international governing body. There are some groups like Catholics and Anglicans and the United Methodist Church that have a sort of single denominational communion of people in different countries, but there are a number of other denominations who feel like that's inappropriate. So, for example, I know you surveyed, and I was originally ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America, 
which is very intentionally in America with the idea that there are Presbyterian churches in Mexico and Canada and other countries in the world. And we don't feel like we ought to sort of colonially try to control them. And so we, they're each an independent church. And that means that like, even of that set of churches that are in communion with each other, according to how the world Christian encyclopedia would count that, that would be like a hundred some different denominations because each nation is its own governing body. That's right. There can be a subtle privileging of our position here, I think. I want to be careful there because I don't think that's the intent always. But saying that there's that many denominations in many ways is a recognition that many cultures, sometimes countries, sometimes cultures within the country, have organized themselves to have faithful churches. And it's just a reflection of their location rather than their desire to be distinct from everyone else in the world. That's right. And then the other caveat that needs to be made about that statistic is that they include a lot of very small groups. And so, you know, there are groups of like seven churches that are a denomination. And while I want to appreciate the fact that that is a reality, the number of actually live, significantly sized denominations in the United States, say, since we both live here, that is a much, much smaller number than the tens of thousands. Another point I want to make about this is unity versus, you know, denominations a good thing or a bad thing is to recognize that unity and unanimity are not the same thing. And so when we say that we want a, want a church to be one, it doesn't mean that we do the same things all together all the time. And to, in fact, to say that, you're necessarily going to bring in some cultural things and some preferences on your part that you think should be done that are not necessarily true in other parts of the world or not necessarily true in other traditions. Different traditions have emphasized different parts of the Christian life and so there is kind of a beauty in the the unity of different things rather than just the unity of all the same thing. And that's something that we need to recognize, I think, as, as beautiful. Another point to make about that is that the way that Scripture talks about the church, it uses very specific metaphors, and many of the metaphors indicate that there is a diversity within the unity. And so two that come to mind are the body we are the body of Christ, and of course, Paul uses that language in order to emphasize that we have different parts, and yet we're made up of the one thing. Another image that he uses is that we are living stones. We're part of a structure, and Christ is the chief cornerstone, but we are all these many different stones, and so it seems to me that the scriptures talk about diversity within the unity, and that's something that we should appreciate. Yeah, I think a lot about when you think about the bad part of denominational splits, John Frame, who's this theologian in this book he wrote years ago called Evangelical Reunion, which is kind of a complicated book to recommend because I, I don't know that I agree with all of it, but he makes several provocative points. And one of the points that stuck with me is just the observation that oftentimes what characterizes different denominations and even different kind of churches in an area is more about people with certain spiritual gifts congregating together and making their gifts essential for all Christians, mm. rather than it is about actual theological differences. And that's really tragic, because ideally in the church you have this diversity of gifts, but what often happens is that you have, like, here's the church that's really about compassion and caring for those in need, and so that's the essential thing to be a Christian, is you have to be spending your time doing that. But as a consequence, their teaching and their discernment and their um, hospitality and organization suffer. And then over here is this church that's all about administration and discernment, and they run this really tight ship and have all of their ducks in a row, and that's really what's essential to be a Christian is to focus on those things, but they're not 
caring for the poor the way that other churches, they're not doing the other things the church needs. And that's true at a local level, but he makes the argument, and I don't think he's all wrong, that that's also responsible for some of the divisions between denominations, that there's these differences of almost gifting and temperament that lie behind the actual expressed doctrinal differences and structural differences. And in as much as that is true, it's really tragic because we really do want people with all different temperaments and gifts to be united together within the church. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the appropriateness of denominations. It's a mixed bag, I think is the conclusion that we could say. There is a sadness to the division, but there's a necessary division and also a beautiful division. So we could think about it that way. And it's just a complex thing. But there's also this question about how we feel about and engage with denominations. And I I was curious about your context, Eric. Is there a sense of trust or of distrust of denominations and where you're ministering? And what do you think is kind of the pulse on our culture right now, at least in America, modern day for denominations? People like to make generalizations about that. And I really don't know that it's very easy to make generalizations because it really depends on where people are coming from. On the one hand, I know people in my world who are very, very committed to a certain denomination. Mostly those people tend to be Lutheran and Catholic in the place that I minister, which is one of those interesting realities that certain people from certain traditions are very invested there. But I find that in as much as there's an identification for older people in the communities I minister to, it's sort of denominational, but it's mostly to this one local church that they're a part of. They have a sort of sense of committedness there. And for almost everybody else, there's very little interest in loyalty to a specific denomination. However, many of those people are operating from a place where they're kind of also unaware of the differences. I talk a lot to evangelical and fundamentalist background people from Bible churches or non-denominational independent churches, and they have these really specific doctrinal convictions about all kinds of stuff, but they just seem unaware of the fact that there are Christians who think that the Bible says other things than what they believe. That's right. I agree with your assessment that it's very hard to get a a pulse on what people actually think. So in my context, for instance, I get both all the time. Very common in Phoenix. And Phoenix is made up of a lot of people that come from a lot of different places. So there's there's kind of a transplant culture here. And many times the most successful churches in Phoenix are the non-denominational churches. There's no question about that. There are just tons and tons of mega churches here that do not have denominational affiliation. So oftentimes what I get when I have people come to our church or see our church or hear about our church from me, I'm meeting someone new. And they, I say I'm a pastor of New Valley Church. And we don't have the fact that we are part of a denomination in our name, even though that we we are part of a denomination. You wimps. <laughs> that's that's. I didn't name the church. <laughs> uh, I uh, I. <laughs> that's good. Go ahead. You don't have to defend yourself. <laughs> that's good. So they're often relieved to hear the name of our church. And so they'll say something like, oh, are you guys part of a group? And I'll say, well, yeah, actually we are. We're part of the Presbyterian church and it's not part of our name though. And, and there's kind of a relief from the, oh, well, good. Like thankful that you, you have your differences. You, at least you don't make people think about them. You know, <laughs> that kind of, that kind of mentality, like, thank you so much for being so, such a good team sport when you come to Phoenix, because we know there's all these non-denominational churches. On the other hand, some of, 
our our biggest growth as a church has been from people that have been de-churched and have come back into the church. So this is just true. Our church has attracted a lot of people that are coming in from a Christian worldview. Maybe they grew up in the church. They've spent a decade away. They spent five years away. They wanted nothing to do with the church. And the chord that I hear them striking the most is thank you so much for being a denominational church. So thank you for being accountable to someone. Thank you for having these documents. And I hear people kind of have this relief because in a sense, they've been chewed up and spit out by the very worst of non-denominationalism, which isn't true in every non-denominational case. And I want to be clear about that. But oftentimes people are saying, I came from a place where anything went and there were no safeguards. And so thank you for having these safeguards up. And there's kind of an appreciation for the fact that we are connected with someone, even if they don't agree with some of the specific tenets of what it means to be in our specific denomination. I'm going to soapbox for a minute, if that's okay, about non-denominational churches not about the fact that they exist. Because if you hold a set of theological convictions that make you think that a local church should be a fully autonomous unit that is not accountable or under the authority of anybody beyond itself, then you're going to create, you know, a local autonomous church. And that is fine. I think you're wrong. But again, that's within the bounds of Christian brotherhood. You think I'm wrong. We can be Christians and love each other. But I often hear people talk about the sort of lack of unity or the diversity of denominations or divisions that exist, and then say, I don't see why we need denominations. Let's all just be non-denominational churches instead. And that (laughs) is a consistent point of frustration to me, because if every church in the United States was its own non-denominational church, then really technically what we've done is we've made hundreds of thousands of denominations exist in the United States, not, you know, (laughs) however many thousand actually do. That is just not a solution to the problem of the diversity of church. And I mentioned this earlier, but that's especially true because the reality is that non-denominational churches almost always have very specific theological views on a number of topics. In fact, often they're pretty predictable even what theological views they end up holding. And the problem there is that it's not that they're not having these distinctive views that require people to hold particular ways of reading the Bible. It's just that they're not being honest about those views or acknowledging the fact that those are issues on which Christians disagree. Now, that said, I have, I mean, there's a church that we work very closely here that is wonderful, and that's a non-denominational Bible kind of church, and I appreciate them a lot in a lot of ways. But I do sometimes have people come to me and say, well, why do we have to be a part of this? Why don't we just get rid of this denominational stuff? And what I always think is that we're really going to do the opposite of what you think you're doing by that. Absolutely, 100%. So saying you're non-denominational doesn't make you automatically on team unity, because you can be very divisive, and maybe even especially with a independent kind of church. So where I want to take us next and just kind of finish out our discussion on this is kind of the strengths and weaknesses of the denominations themselves. So full disclosure, as we've already said, both Eric and myself are in denominations and therefore we support the idea of denominations on some level, but that doesn't mean that we're above criticizing them or critiquing them for the purpose of understanding how we can do it better. And so I'm just going to throw it all together here, Eric. Strengths and weaknesses of a denomination. What's kind of the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of why they should exist or what what they hinder? Well, I want to back up first and maybe challenge the terms that you're framing this on a little bit. Because what you really, I think, mean is sort of denominational connectionality, right? The idea that above the local church, there's some organization that unites 
churches in different locations together and has some authority and connection between them. You're saying that can exist outside of a denomination. And I'm saying that not all denominations have the same level of that. The difference between a Catholic priest and a Southern Baptist pastor who would represent kind of two extremes of how connectional their denominations are, are going to have very different experiences of what it's like to be a part of a larger denomination. In the sense that the priest is paid a salary effectively by the denomination and sent to a parish by the bishop and has almost no autonomy. That's a little bit of an oversimplification simplification, but relatively little autonomy. Whereas a Southern Baptist pastor might well, other than just the move of affiliating with the Southern Baptist church, largely just do what he wants and not have any real connectionality outside of that. And so what we're really saying is that there's strengths and weaknesses to having some amount of that connectional integration and accountability. Is that is that fair? That's, yeah, absolutely fair. I mean, I think certainly we need to be careful how specific we go, but there's a sense in which the reason why churches would align themselves into a denomination are for these two or three kind of main things. So we're kind of talking about the same thing, but I I take your distinction as a valid one. Sure. So the first biggest one that I've mentioned, so I'll just name it so that we can have it on the table, is accountability. The reality is that there are plenty of situations where local pastors or local churches do problematic things or potentially problematic things. And there's huge benefits to having some larger body be able to step in and be a check on their power. So if I did something that's potentially disqualifying from office. I'm part of a denomination where people would step in and I'd be investigated and it would be up to people that are not me and are not anyone at my church, whether I could still be a pastor or not. And likewise, if there was some dispute that happened within our church, we would have an ability to appeal that to the denomination and have them help us work through that dispute. Agree 100%. And accountability, I would say, is the primary reason why I mentioned before people are in support of our denomination. So the thing that I get the most is, hey, I'm so glad we're part of a denomination. I'm so glad that there's accountability there. There is someone else looking. There's a process for if things go bad. I would say another strength of at least our denominations and the way that we've defined it here is that there's often, not always, but often a gatekeeping function for theology and for ministers. Oftentimes, denominations are formed because of particular theology, and there is a interest, at least, if not an effectiveness, but at least an interest in keeping that theology pure and focused on the right things or the most important things. And so what, what that looks like in practice is ministers who are evaluated to be in this denomination have to reach certain benchmarks, they have to be tested in certain ways so that they can be approved for the call into this denomination. And that's a real strength that I think not every denomination certainly has, but the ones that we serve in certainly puts a priority on. Especially there, it's that they're being tested by people who are peers, who are able to push back against them and understand what they're saying. One of the challenges is you you got a pastor, he goes to seminary for a few years, he learns some stuff and he shows up at some local church without any sort of larger organizational oversight and he starts quoting Hebrew and Greek and stuff. And really no one else in that church is able to keep up with that because they're not trained in those ways. And as a consequence, he can kind of teach whatever he wants without having that group of peers who can push back who are similarly trained. One last strength. This is the one that in some ways non-denominational entities can help with, although I still appreciate being a part of a body that does them, is that we can join together and partner together in different causes and ministries. And so things like global missions and work in areas that need poverty help and things like that. Just right now, I'm thinking about we have some churches in the Bahamas that have 
just been hit with this really severe hurricane, and there's already discussion about how to raise money to try to help those churches. There's a sense that we can kind of come together and help each other and do things that one individual church would not be able to do. Absolutely. There's a dark side to that, and this would be a weakness. So when you have a shared cause and you have a shared movement towards things, you got to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. So there has been this idea that denominations are led astray, and in so doing, they lead more and more people astray because they're part of a group. And so as the group, you know, oftentimes the example used is the more liberal or mainline churches in America, they start moving in a direction and then they all receive comfort by moving in that direction together. And slowly, you know, things are broken down and some of those initial things they held to are not held to anymore. And yet this whole thing has moved. And so that definitely does happen. And it's a it's something that being independent may or may not help you avoid. I guess that would be a good discussion point. <laughs> like being independent means that you if you lose a leader or you get a new pastor, you might be in a completely different direction even quicker. But I would say that as a denomination, sometimes they have the ability to move each other in the wrong directions. I've always felt like the actual question of is denominational connectedness or independence a better safeguard against slipping into error, it's always seemed to me to be kind of just hard to make that decision for a variety of reasons, because like you say, it can go either way. Mm -hmm. One thing I will note is that I mentioned those four different tiers, and that first level of kind of divisions within the church is also important. And this is, in some ways, I realize an opinion that certain people will not appreciate. But there comes a point, and frankly, I think did come a point in some of the mainline denominations, where it ceased to be a question of integrity on the basis even of secondary issues, And instead it became like, do we believe that it is necessary for pastors to affirm things like the resurrection and that the Bible is God's word and things that are pretty foundational to Christianity? And at that point, you are really obligated to divide. And I think there were some people who, even though they sort of still believed those things, they felt a deeper sense of loyalty to their denomination than they did to the necessity of those gospel essentials. And so they stayed in some cases, well past the point where they maybe should have. There is a point where it's not admirable to be unified. That's right. And that's something that is very hard to determine when you have real people and real situations and real love for a certain church or denomination, but it's nevertheless true. I don't want to minimize the tearfulness that should accompany those kinds of situations. I know the way I put that was a little bit harsh, but it is also true that there's a sort of what does light have to do with darkness moment that comes in some of those cases. But that does point to a weakness of denominations too, which is that there are times that people can become more interested in their denomination than they are in the integrity of Christianity and the gospel as a whole. Any other weaknesses you would note? Denominations, in some ways like local churches in an area, can serve as avenues through which people start prioritizing their tribe over Jesus's kingdom as a whole. Because of that Catholicity of the church that we mentioned, part of what being united means is rejoicing when I look around and there are other gospel teaching Christian churches that are seeking to minister and do good things. I should really rejoice and be encouraged when I see that they're doing that. And I should really weep if I see them struggling and feel weighty for the the issues that they might have. And instead, there is a sort of covetousness that I think can kind of creep in where it's less meaningful if some other denomination is doing this good thing. What I really want is for my denomination to be doing it. And that can lead to unhealthy competition, and that can lead to just some really problematic sectarian spirits. My prayer is for the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States to flourish, not for my particular 
denomination to flourish. That's right. And there can be tribalism on the outside. Anytime there's a divide, there can be tribalism on the outside and there can be tribalism on the inside. You can have people even within the group that create more dysfunctional patterns because they're, they're trying to create even further divisions in. And there's that's where we get this fighting spirit and this kind of exacting mentality towards other people where they have to jump through certain hoops in much the same way that we're saying our denomination should jump through these hoops from the outside. Many people even within can kind of create divisions. And that's kind of the thing that is true of any group of people when you get them together in one spot, right? So it's not a weakness of denominations because of their very form formulation. It's a weakness because of what humans do when they're trying to organize, when they're trying to work together, and sin isn't involved. A lot of those weaknesses really just boil down to the reality that denominations are sort of like big churches, and all of the strengths and challenges that can present within a local church can also present within a denominational body. I think we solved it, Eric. I think we can move on. So we're going to leave things there for now. We're going to transition now to a, a time where we talk about what's good. Life is made up of more than just truth statements and what's right and wrong, what's good or bad. It's also made up of the beautiful and the enjoyable. And so we're glad to share some recommendations with you that we've been enjoying. I'll kick it over to you, Eric. Eric, what have you been enjoying? So I'm going to make a recommendation that is probably ill-timed and that if you want to take me up on it, most likely you're going to have to wait until next summer. But I want to recommend that you go to a Renaissance fair. <laughs> I just took my family to the Bristol Renaissance Fair, which is near Chicago and is one of the really big ones in the United States. If you've never been, Renaissance fairs are these huge festivals with all these people dressed up in medieval garb and all of these shows with jugglers and we watched a sword swallower and musicians and... Lots of people selling stuff, and you can buy medieval-themed fair food, right? So you can get giant turkey legs or the stereotype, or things like scotch eggs, which if you've never had them, is a hard-boiled egg wrapped in sausage covered in breading and deep-fried. Just various delicious things. And it's really, really a fun experience, frankly, just to kind of go and be around it. There are people who get way into it. There are people who go in full costume which we did not this year, although I'm kind of thinking about rectifying that and going again next year. It is a good time and the sort of thing that is outside of a lot of people's normal orbit of what to do, but I think a lot of people would really get a kick out of. It sounds to me, Eric, like you're trying to make the What's Good segment about how geeky you can possibly be. So it's getting more and more intense and I approve of it. So thank you for sharing. I'm going to recommend a podcast and website in one. And I do so with a little bit of trepidation, which I'll explain in just a minute. But I want to recommend to you the Knowledge Project podcast and its connected blog, which is fs.blog. Knowledge Project podcast and fs.blog. Have you heard of this, Eric? No, I have not. So this is a newer website and podcast. It's a guy named Shane Parrish, and he is a Canadian guy who is collecting all the different bits of knowledge that he can into one place. And so he, he combines them into what he calls mental models. He's at, at 110 of these or something like that at this point. He's collecting in one spot all the different stuff that you kind of need to understand and have a, like a good, good life or you know fulfilling life or to understand how science works or all these different mental models. And he's trying to collect it in one spot. And so there's a couple of things I enjoy about this. Number one is just simply how Canadian he is. So if you listen to his podcast, it's just a trip down how stereotypically Canadian can we be? And I just really appreciate that because I don't know a lot of Canadians and I, 
you know, it's, it's fun to, to, to see that. And so that's, that's one reason, but also he just has fascinating guests on his podcast. I recently listened to one about publishing your own book and also sailing around the world at the same time. And so I'd recommend that one as well. The discussion and not publishing a book while sailing around the world you'd recommend? That's right. Well, it's this guy who like is big into self-publishing and he's made millions of dollars in self-publishing. But also his two, his two goals for life were to sail around the world and to publish books. That's what he does constantly. And so it was just a fascinating kind of conversation. The reason why I hesitate to, to mention it is it has a little bit of this kind of modernist, you know, edge to it, meaning, you know, science and reason are the ways to have the most meaningful life. And I don't agree with that statement. And I think that sometimes that's kind of people's way to have a moralistic approach to what they believe could be a life without a good life without God. And so I don't want to go there. But at the same time, I just love this impulse to kind of collect knowledge. There's mental models about like Occam's razor and all kinds of things that you would kind of want to know, but they're all kind of summarized and in one little place. And so I recommend it. FS.blog. The podcast is called The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. Sounds good. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed the discussion, there's a few things you can do to help us out to support this podcast. Most important, we'd love for you to grab a friend, keep this conversation going with them, share this podcast with them. Also visit us online. We're at all the places that you would expect us to be. First of all, we have a website, simplyfaithful.org. We're also on Twitter at Faithful Podcast. And on Facebook, if you type in Simply Faithful, you'll find us. If you ever have questions or comments there that we find especially helpful, we might even talk about them on the show. We would also appreciate it if you would rate us on your podcast marketplace of choice. And most importantly, we would love it if you would just tell a friend about the show. The way that more faces will end up around this table is if you invite them. That said, until next time, I'm Gray. I'm Eric. And this has been Simply Faithful.